so it was complete darkness as we arrived. We got to our camp and it was pitch black. But I remember distinctly when the sun rose on that first day and just it kind of revealed Black Rock City. And you were like, where am I? That was Rachel Bowditch, author of three books, including On the Edge of Utopia, Performance and Ritual at Burning Man. Rachel is a really experienced burner, a professor at ASU, and an all-around interesting individual. A lot of the challenges of Burning Man that we talk about in this episode were actually addressed by the Burning Man organization this week. It's really fascinating to see an organization that is so in tune with the struggles that they're encountering, with maintaining this utopian idea. This episode is your opportunity to get a tiny peek into the world of Burning Man. So without further ado, let's get to Becoming Legendary with Rachel Bowditch. There are no gold medals for down dog. Maximize every opportunity so that you can become you legendary. Become legendary. What adjustments can you make right now to make yourself one Your percent better? Your only goal is to be the best version of you. Rachel, welcome to Becoming Legendary. So happy to have you on. Hi. (laughs) I start out every single podcast the exact same way, and I want to know what your typical day looks like. In my life? In your life, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, during the week, it usually starts out with me getting up very early, about 6 a.m. to take my daughter to school. Good. And that's what happened this morning. And then I had... So I dropped her off by 7.20, and then I... This morning, I had a faculty meeting at 8, so then I had to rush to ASU and do a two-hour faculty meeting. Um, But some days, I drop her off at school, and then I have time to either take a yoga class or do something sort of for myself, uh, and then head into ASU uh, for meetings, usually all day, (laughs) or class. Um, If I don't have class, then um, I'll probably work from home and just answer lots of emails and do a lot of things like that. And then around three or four, I go pick my daughter up from school and we, she does her homework. And then I like to have creative time with her where we don't, where we do some creative projects, coloring or something like that, and then make dinner. And then around seven thirty on the dot, I, we start getting ready for bed. <laughs> she has a bath and then we read her stories. Well, she, we read a book together. I read one page, she reads another page mm-hmm. and then I read her book and then it lights out. And usually after she goes to sleep, I just continue to do some more work in my studio. Um, and usually when I have to get up so early, I actually have to go to bed early because I just am wrecked otherwise, yeah. unless I have work to do. And then do it all over again. <laughs> On the weekends, I have a you know, much more free schedule. But I do make my own hour. So unless I have scheduled meetings, I, I organize my own time, which yeah. is great. Yeah, there's a nice... I, there's a couple of things I want to talk about. One, yes. with your sleep. I think it's funny that you said, I go to bed early because if I don't, I'm wrecked unless I have work. like work is the magic the magic effect that will will prevent you from being wrecked the next day Mm -hmm. which i think is a common thing for everybody right like we all not everybody for too many of us that we've uh prioritized this 
massive quantity of workload that's expected of each individual organism within the society. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like there's too much work to actually get done in the amount of time that we have for our, for our existence. Is there anything that you do to just cope with that, with just the experience of this, like, I want to be in bed. I I need to be in bed biologically because I know it'll make me feel better. But I also have three hours of work that I need to do. I'm asking for a friend. I drink, I drink tea. Okay. I yeah. drink tea and I, I, I have a hot tub at my house. So mm-hmm. a lot of times if I, my mind is like overstimulated, I'll do the hot tub or a hot bath yeah. so that I can get into sleep easier. I actually have really pretty good sleep once I'm asleep. Um, although when I do have a lot of work or a lot of things that yeah. does cause some anxiety. So I might have like an hour of like restlessness, which is kind of annoying, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I've really tried, because I think in the past, I think I'm learning, you know, I'm 43 now, I think I'm developing better sleep patterns. I think in the past, I would just automatically default to, I must work, I mm. must, 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 must do this thing. And I'm starting to alter my patterns so that I really try to do the work in the day and make that my priority yeah. so that I don't have to have that three hours of, oh my gosh, I have three hours of work to do. Yeah. So that's taking some, you know, I'm shifting a little bit. <laughs> and and that, you're crediting that to time management, to planning? Time management and just, I think when I turned, I feel like, because I've, I've done a lot of thinking about this. In my 20s, it was very much exploration and, and theater and, and, and figuring things out. In my 30s, it was very much career oriented and trying to obtain specific things like tenure writing my book, like very concrete goals. And in my forties, I've obtained those things. And now I'm really focusing on my health and it's about meditation. It's about yoga. It's about work-life balance. I feel like in my thirties, there was no work-life balance. It was 90% work, 10% other. And so I've really tried to figure out how do I not let work dominate everything I do? Still hard. I still have to remind myself to 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 have a better balance but i think i have a better i'm more in check with that now it's weird it's weird how ambitious we are Mm -hmm. Uh, i was thinking about this specific topic and then we're going to get to your book and we're going to get to all the exciting things but i was thinking about this specific topic last night of um how acutely the roman society was set up to encourage ambition Right, like the most amazing possible reward in Roman life was a triumph, a parade that celebrated your successful ambition. And the rarity of that occurrence um, is hard for us to understand. We don't have anything that's comparable to this. Like, here's the most ambitious person on the planet. But I guess if we took like Jeff Bezos right now, if we used him and we like did a week long where all we did is celebrate Jeff Bezos as a god that's essentially as close as we can get to this this roman celebration of ambition and we don't celebrate ambition that same way but we still fall trap to that ambition and i can't i can't figure out personally why do you have any insight why we do this Wait, why we're so ambitious why we fall into the trap of ambition mm. right because I understand that the there's the desire for ambition, mm-hmm. but we also we, we have relative relatively decent cognitive abilities in our 30s. 
Mm-hmm. We can think about a lot of things, we, but for some reason we need to like get physically and mentally beat up before we're like, oh, maybe maybe living my life purely through the lens of ambition isn't the thing that's going to make me happy. Any insight into what's wrong with us as a species? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a big question. Um, well, I've often thought, I've re- meditated or reflected on my own ambition yeah because i am incredibly ambitious um and i try to think about why am i so ambitious yeah. you know like why do i care you know there's a plenty of people around me who are like yeah who cares about doing you know and looking at my upbringing looking at my mom my parent my dad my yeah. parents um and i think something in still was instilled in me at a very young age my parents got divorced okay um, when I was seven and my mom, uh, left, they got separated and we moved to Indonesia and then to Singapore. Okay. And my mom had to rebuild her life from scratch. And so I saw her having to, to work and not, not to rely on a man for anything. Mm-hmm. And so I think at a very early age, I, this thing was instilled in me. Like I cannot rely on anyone else for anything. Mm-hmm. I have to do it myself. And so that always made me really engaged and proactive and um, because it was never, ever my parents saying, you should do this or you should do that ever. It was always, it always came from me. It was an intrinsic thing that came. Because I think as soon as the parents start to say, if only you did this, if only, and then it becomes externally pushing on, I think ambition has to come from within. Yeah. And how do you cultivate ambition? I don't know. And so I don't know where it comes from, even to the points where my parents are like, I don't even know why you're so ambitious. Like you wrote one book. Why do you have to write three more? You know? Um, And I'm like, I don't know why, but I just have this drive and I don't know where this drive comes from other than that. Maybe that initial feeling of I have to do this myself. Yeah. Uh, Because the reason my ambition is not being driven by extrinsic motivation, like rewards or or I want, I want that triumph. I, I want that. Um, I want that parade. Yeah. It, it's not driven by that because if it was, I would have given up a long time ago because it's way beyond that. And that's why my art is so important. Cause I feel that it's to me that I'm doing it for something bigger than myself. Because I think that when you're driven to like, I want to be in Hollywood because I want to win the Oscar. Like yeah. that's the wrong reason for doing your art. Like if, if you're, if you're driven by these external rewards, that's the wrong reason for doing anything. Or I want to do, I want to go into the theater cause I want to be famous. Mm-hmm. I want to be an actress. I want to be famous. If that's your reason, wrong reason. If it's because of the work, ultimately that work, if it's done well, will be rewarded, Yeah, <laughs> but it's not the reason for the the ambition and that, that's just my take. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. Um, and it's a healthier, it's a healthier outlet for ambition. And I still think ambition can get in the way of like what we actually want, yeah. which is to be happy. Yeah. And, and, and I think that I, um, you know, it, I luckily over time, I have been very well rewarded for my work and my ambition. Yeah. Um, but this is the shift that happened for me in my forties was, okay, I have three books on my shelf. Does that make me any happier? No. Does it make me feel more connected and more like in love or more happy? And the answer is no. Yeah. And so this is why all those things don't actually matter to me anymore. Like they don't matter. Yeah. 
I mean, what matters is connection, community, um, passion, peak experiences, breathing. Yeah, those are the important things. Those are the important things. So it took me a while to get there. On the edge of utopia, ritual and dance at Burning Man. Performance. Performance. Ritual and performance at Burning Man. That was your first book. Correct. And in the in the hierarchy or the the library of Burning Man books, it's the third book, the um, third Burning yes, Man specific I th- book. I think. I mean, I, there may have been some picture books earlier on, but the first academic. Not academic. Actually, it was written by a journalist called This is Burning Man by Brian Doherty. Came out about a year or two before mine. Okay. Um, and so that was sort of the first book that kind of wrote about Burning Man. That wasn't just like a, a coffee table picture book. Yeah. And the second book was After Burn. It was a series of essays um, by uh, Mark Van Proyen and Lee Gilmore. And that was a series of different essays from different perspectives. And so mine was actually the first scholarly book on Burning Man. Because um, Brian Doherty's book was really, um, he's a journalist and has written in a more uh, amazing history of the early years of Burning Man. And so when he wrote that book, I was so thankful because I thought, oh, yes, I don't have to write about that history. He wrote about it. I can cite him. Yeah. So but mine was the first comprehensive single authored monograph on Burning Man from a scholarly perspective. My hope here is that we get to kind of experience some of Burning Man through your experience. So my first my first Burning Man question that I have for you, and I don't even know if this is a if this is if this is an ethical question. Um, what's your player name? I don't have one. <laughs> how 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 is that possible? I know I don't have one. Um, I never because I feel like a playa name is something that is it playa. Gives to you. So you playa. Can, okay, no. playa. Um, <laughs> I, I never playa. I never got one. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel like that usually it's given to you. You know, I guess I could come up with my own ply name and start introducing myself as, you know, Enigma or, you know, some sort of <laughs> yeah. ply name. Uh, maybe that's my new ply name. I don't know. <laughs> what, if, um, what if you came up with with the name here today? I know. Well, well, well the thing is, th- these ideas keep coming into my head, but it's, it's for me, it feel, every time it's felt a little artificial. Yeah. And I feel as if if it doesn't come about organically, I don't want to be one of those people who's like, my new play name is Black Boots. You yeah. know, I don't know. I just feel like some of that, some of that aspects of Burning Man culture are just feel a little bit too contrived. Mm. Okay. So, and that's one of them for you. Yeah. See, I feel almost identical uh, to that experience with tattoos. Yeah. Like, I'm like, I would love to figure out something that I feel connected to enough to have artistically mm-hmm. added to my body. Right. But every time I try to think of it, I'm just like, ah, this feels so, this isn't natural. This doesn't, yeah. I can't fig. I can't find something that I'm like, I want that to be a to part be a of a new name. Yeah. I mean, I feel like naming something is such a big deal. So mm. for me to take on a new name is, uh. I'm, may, I'm sure one day it will happen, but I want it to happen organically and yeah. not, okay, what's my playa name? Yeah. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I, no, I like that. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's a perfect answer. <laughs> and it really is. Uh, there's a, there's a real intimacy to names. Yeah. And naming someone else. Right, yeah, is for huge. sure. Right. Yeah. Especially a, a cognitive being. Yeah. And there's some great playa names out there. I mean, really good ones where 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 you where you hear the name and you think, yes, that mm. that really suits that person. Yeah. And then there's some really terrible ones as well. Um, like all things. Yeah. <laughs> how many how many Burning Man? Now here's a second question. I guess doesn't like to be called a festival, right? 
Tell me, how how do you describe, how should we describe the experience of Burning Man? I mean, yes, they're not... Oftentimes, it gets referred to as the Burning Man Festival, and that's something that the organization and, and people sort of cringe at because... And I'll, I can go into that in more detail, but I would Burning Man is a cultural phenomenon. Um, it is way beyond a festival. Um, festivals are, in general, if you look at Lollapalooza or any of these other music festivals, uh, they are curated. They have corporate sponsorship. They are, you know, ticketed events that have a lineup of DJs and a lineup of main stage events. And there's main stages, and it's very you know, there's other things going around. There might be some organic activity around that, but it's very much a curated event that you buy a ticket for and you have a lineup of things. So Burning Man is, doesn't do that. Um, nothing, the art is curated, but none of the DJs are curated by the organization. So different theme camps may curate a series of DJs or, but they very much, um, have avoided this main stage effect. They could easily put up a big stage around the man and every night have, you know, headline DJs, you know, big name rock stars, but they have not done that. And there ha- there were small attempts around, you know, over its history to have these sort of main stage events. And there was pushback from the community to like, that that's not what this is. And I think that has been part of it's a huge success is that you don't have a lineup of all the DJs. Yeah. Like they're not even allowed to advertise those, like maybe on their website, but you can't pass out flyers. Amazing. The top DJs in the world go to Burning Man. Some of the top musicians in the world go to Burning Man, but they're going um, invited by camps and not, it's has the the music is not curated by the main event. Yeah. Um, The uh, center camp has an open mic night and you can sign up to do a show there. But again, that is not curated like a festival would. Have you ever seen a open mic night go terribly for someone? Um, I actually haven't. I've, I've kind of drifted in and out of an open mic night. I'm really not a big fan of open night mic nights. So I haven't <laughs> spent a whole lot of time watching those. <laughs> how many, how many times have you attended? Um, seven times over since 2001, but with gaps in between. Yeah. Cause so I've sort of have an overview of the last 18 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. which is a pretty rad perspective. Yeah. And is it getting better or worse? Oh, I mean, every, every person you talk to is going to have a different opinion on that, right? Yeah. There's all the old school burners who are moaning that it wasn't like the old days and that it wasn't. You know, it's never, it's been, it's never going to be the same. And totally so, true. so, so, so yes, it, it is evolving and it is shifting. I would say the last year I was at Burning Man, which was 2018 last summer was the best year I've ever been at Burning was the best year for me. Okay. So it just, for me, it's getting better. Yeah. I mean, I can't wait to go again and have a whole new experience. And it, like anything, I think if you go there with expectations of what it's going to be, that's your own. For sure. That's your own fault, right? Your you're own you're, you're going in with these expectations. It's how about going every year as if it's a new experience and allow that complete presentness to the moment guide that moment. Yeah. Versus, oh, but last year was so much better, and this year, you know, it's not like it was last year. So this year sucks because it's not the same. Yeah. Well, if it's the same, why are you going again? Right. Like, isn't the whole point to have a new experience? Yeah. Hey, I don't know. I mean, yes, and it's shifted because. 
one thing in 2011, it sold out for the first time in its history. So now the demand has exceeded the supply. Yeah. And so it's actually very hard to get a ticket yeah. now. And um, there's definitely shifts within the ambition of yeah. the theme camps are mm-hmm. getting more and more complex. They're getting more and huger, bigger, better, louder. Uh, even the art installations. Last year, there was a huge installation, a 747. Ha- three quarters of a 747 was brought out to the playa. <laughs> and that, is, that art project cost a million dollars to yeah. bring out there. Now, that is crazy. That's crazy, yeah. Right. And so that that's kind of the scale and scope of things out there. And back in the day, if you had an art car... It's because you got a it's because you got a um, golf cart and you decided to cover it with pink fur and make it into a bunny slipper because yeah. that was your vision and you spent out hundreds of hours making your bunny car. Now you have people coming to the play and saying, "I will pay you fifty. You know, I'll pay you to make my art car. Here's mm-hmm. my vision for my art car, or even worse, design an art car for me." Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so th- this idea of plug and play is sort of becoming more ubiquitous in terms of before. I mean, my first couple of years there, I was had a Bunsen burner with the wind blowing as I was making ramen noodles in a dust storm. And if I didn't make my ramen noodles, I would starve to death. Mm-hmm. Like that was how I ate my meals. Now, a lot of theme camps and the camp I stayed at, uh, Camp Contact, which is an incredible camp with Anahasa Village, has a whole infrastructure, has a whole kitchen which you volunteer you have to do several shifts but there's three meals a day uh it's not a plug and play camp they call it a duocracy so that that's a camp where you have to really participate but there's still a whole infrastructure there's a whole full kitchen there's seven refrigerators full of food and there's you know a lunch and a dinner and it's but then there's other camps where you go in and you pay twenty five thousand dollars and just everything is prepared for you yeah you don't do anything and that that's a shame because there's more of that can you give a general a general overview of the camp structure so that we can kind of build a foundation of the setup and maybe even you, you don't even have to include the like the new fancy but how it's a general overview yeah well okay so this just ties into the history of burning man the first year at in the desert was 1990 and it was 80 people in the desert and it was everyone just setting up a, a tent kind of in a semicircle around the man uh, so that the open ply would be behind them. So it was just sort of this organic semicircular structure that was really there from the beginning. Um, and it's pretty interesting because I think it was Harley Dubois. She brought up an espresso maker one year. I think it was the first or second year. And she said, you know, and she was giving out free coffee in the morning. And so that became a prototype for what was center camp, what is now known as center camp. Yeah. She's actually one of the uh, Burning Man LLC um, founders. So then fast forward to 1996, we go from 80 people to 10,000 people. So in six years, it grows 10,000. Yeah. That's a very <laughs> it's a pretty fast, steep curve. Pretty steep curve. <laughs> so in 1996, Everyone was camped everywhere. It was complete chaos to the point where it was dangerous and someone was driving high speeds, a rental car, and ran over a tent. Some people died and were injured. Um, and that 
force them to kind of rethink, okay, what are we doing? That's your John Law kind of step back from the organization, sort of saying, this is too dangerous. What is going on here? 1997, they moved off the playa to a private venue, to mm. a private location. And for the first time, we're able to put a boundary fence up. So for the first time, we're really able to charge money. Before, they would have a little a door and say, go through the door to pay your $20. But people just go around the door because they couldn't find the door. Um, <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah. So then in 98, they got a permit from the BLM, the uh, Bureau of Land Management, mm. to go back to the playa. But the caveat was that they had to make it safe for emergency vehicles. And so that's why Rod Garrett, who is the architect with Larry Harvey, um, designed the map of Black Rock City, which is here. And um, so this was the, the plan. And so it's designed from 2 o'clock to 10 o'clock with radial streets. And so everything is on a grid with the man here in the temple here. And it'll never complete the full circle. Right, because this is open playa here. Okay. So... And all the art installations are here. And so every single person now has an address. So you can say, I'm at 7 o'clock in G. And depending on the year's theme, this was the psyche. You have, you know, delusion, delirium, ego. Mm. So you might be at 6 o'clock in ego. ego. But someone can find you. Not right. only friends can find each other, but it's mostly... F but the reason this was designed was for emergency vehicles. And the streets are wide enough for, I uh, know fire trucks to go through. Okay. So the, the evolution of the camps was, you know, back in the early days, early, early on, someone might put a pink flamingo in front of their tent and say, this is pink flamingo camp. Yeah. And the next year they have 50 pink flamingos. Um, or this is, you know, bad, the bad Santa camp and they would have Christmas trees and like a terrible family Christmas camp, you know, and everyone has to wear Santa suits. Um, but then as those got bigger, you'd be like, Oh, I'm I'm camping with, pink flamingo camp or right. I'm camping with this. And so they started to get a little bigger and over time, what started to develop were, um, theme camps, right? So this idea of a theme camp, um, and then from there villages. So to be, to constitute a village back in the day, this may have shifted is about 150 people okay. to be a, a village. So Anahasa village where I camped this last year is a village of about of several uh, theme camps. camps. So Clamp Contact was in there, and there was a bunch of other camps there. But so so you have your village, so Anhasa Village, which is our village. Um, but then within that Camp Contact has about a hundred and fifty people okay. in it. Um, and so the mayor, I think. Daryl is the mayor of Anahasa Village, so he's the mayor of the whole village. Okay. Uh, but then he is particularly in charge of camp contact, um, and they build the whole infrastructure. And so I, in my book, I write, at the time I was staying with Costume Cult, um, an asylum village, which was a New York-based camp. And when I first started camping there, I think it was in 2004, it was very DIY. Uh I remember they had a kitchen tent, which was basically a tent with some tables and everyone brought their own Bunsen burners okay. and maybe they shared, but pretty much there was no refrigerator. There was no electricity. It was just a space to cook your food outside of the dust, right? It was just an area. There was no coordination of any kind of meals or, and then I think at a certain point, a lot of these camps are like, 
well, that's kind of silly. If we're all, we all need to eat and we're all making, you know, 17 different right. meals. Why don't we coordinate right. our meals? So over time that started to evolve. So a lot of these camps have very well structured infrastructure, but this has nothing to do with the Burning Man organization. Right. I mean, this is all, they just are given the spot. Right. Um, and there are so many different, so then there's around on Black Rock City, there's, there's different parts that are walk-in camping. So if you're not part of a theme camp, you can just pull up your car and find a spot. Okay. So there's definitely those areas. Um, How does one get associated with a camp? Um, so lots of different ways. Um, if you go onto the Burning Man website, it lists all of the camps. Mm. And each camp has a little description about what its philosophy and theme is. And often they have a contact. So technically, they're all supposed to be open. Right. You're not radically inclusive, inclusive, but that's not really true. Um, (laughs) So you can look through those and sort of, and sort of see which one resonates with you. And you can say, Oh wow. You know, the red nose district, it's a bunch of clowns. That sounds fun. Um, And and (laughs) that does not sound fun. (laughs) uh, um, That's actually how I got into one of my camps because I was studying performance and ritual in particular i wanted to look at circus and so i saw the red nose district and it said that they were going to be erecting an enormous circus tent and it was the home of cirque berserk so i did i actually with them i did a cold call and i said i'm writing a dissertation on performance at burning man i would love to camp with you and they wrote back and said yeah sure how was it being surrounded by clowns it was great it was fun it was good no, it was great because I actually was, because I was camped there, I could go in there and observe the rehearsals uh, as, as part of my research yeah. that led up to the final Friday night show. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I wouldn't have had that access if, if I hadn't camped there and also to interview all the performers yeah. and just sort of be behind the scenes on what it took to put this massive circus together at Burning Man. Um, and being surrounded by clowns isn't really that, not that ab- scary. It's not even that abnormal there, though. Right? No, yeah. <laughs> but but these are professional clowns. These are professional trained really um, <laughs> performers. I mean, so some of the performers that I interviewed uh, work with Cirque du Soleil, yeah. and they just choose to come to Burning Man to perform for free for yeah. a week. I mean, these are incredibly talented performers. Yeah. Um, and so that's how I, so you can do a cold call. And then this last year I camped at camp contact and through my partner, he, um, he knew them and he was like, Oh, you should, you should camp this there. Is the spot. Right. Okay. And it's a great spot. And that, that was really more, um, contact improv yoga, natural healing kind of community. Okay. But then I met someone, Lola, who's a, a good friend of ours now. Um, she cold called too. She read it, the description, and contacted Daryl and said, "Oh, I'm coming from France. I would like to join your camp." He said, "Yes." So, what? And there's hundred thousand people. Seventy thousand is the limit. Seventy thousand right now. Cap. Cap ever. Yeah, and they can't go higher. And they can't expand outward. No. So the the city is done. The ma- the reason that is is because of the highway, which is a two lane highway, single lane two way. Okay. It just cannot sustain more traffic. Okay. It's just not safe. They can't. And it already takes eight hours to get in and eight hours to get out of the city on a good day. Why aren't we just getting together and doing some manual labor, building out that highway? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> make it a huge highway. Do you have a first memory of like 
I landed. Here it is. This is what's unfolded in front of me. At Burning Man? Yeah. My first year? Yeah. Is there anything that's just like, there it was. It all, like, I'm here. Well, the first year I went, I went with three guys, uh, my boyfriend at the time, Paul, and uh, two other guys who were DJs from San Francisco. And we drove all through the night so that we would get there at dawn. Okay. So we drove all through the night and we were in line waiting, you know, as at, at the time the wait wasn't that long, but we, um, so it was complete darkness as we arrived and other people were driving so we could take turns napping and stuff. I remember we got to our camp and it was pitch black. This was a, a very low key camp. This is basically pitching tents and nothing was coordinated. Um, I don't even remember how I ate food that year. I don't even know how that happened. <laughs> it was probably like pop tarts and ramen noodles the entire week. <laughs> and, and, you know, oatmeal, add water and stir oatmeal. Yeah. Um, but I remember distinctly when the sun rose on that first day and just it kind of revealed Black Rock City. Yeah. And you were like, where <laughs> am I? That, that was a memorable moment. Yeah. That seems like the perfect way to experience it for the first time. Yeah. It just the light lifted. And so the first thing I did, Paul and I, was we just walked along the Esplanade, I think, to center camp and maybe went and got a coffee. But just sort of the city was just waking up and people had been there for a while like yeah. the people who were setting up camps but back then the camps were nowhere near as elaborate nothing compared to to how it is now it was very much you know costco you know just tent it was not these enormous you know yeah. installations that we have now yeah when you're when you're there so this year it's august 25th to september 2nd uh-huh. um so seven days what is the what is the most challenging aspect of the experience? Well, it requires a lot of preparation. You can't just show up. Some people do, but <laughs> um, you know, there's preparation. You have to to have things. Uh, you know, I, I would recommend. Uh, well, that gets that gets into more recommend. I mean, I think the more prepared you are to deal with the environment, yeah, uh, the happier you're going to be. So to just kind of wing it is not only are you relying on everyone else because for the things that you're going to need, because you're going to need them, it's just to be radically self-reliant. Yeah. Um, and do a huge long list of the things they recommend you bring like chapstick, mm. um, wet wipes, maybe, um, water, lots and lots of water. Um, the, the key thing is just always drinking wa- more water than you think you're going to need. Cause the worst thing you can have is dehydration. Yeah. Um, sunblock hats sunglasses like those kind of things because the weather during the day is quite extreme it's very very hot compared to phoenix it's nothing but for most people it's very hot during the day and very cold at night so the shift is like a 50 degree shift so you have to prepare for the hottest of summer and the coldest of winter at the same time um and to uh have those things so i mean for me it's like having a day pack where i have all the things that i need and to pack things like granola bars, because you may be on the other side of the playa and you realize, oh, I'm hungry. So do you travel back, you know, an yeah. hour or do you have things that you need that you might need? Um, so that that's that's um, but it's also part of the fun, you For know, sure. and, and having and having uh, 
suddenly you might get caught in a complete dust storm where there's a complete whiteout. And so having a dust mask or having goggles something to cover you. This last year, there was maybe one dust storm the whole week, which was incredible. But I've been previous years where there's a guaranteed three or four hour dust storm every day. Mm. So that's the that's really challenging when you get playa dust just in everything. Okay, done everything. Everything. Has that ever rained? It did. I was not there the okay. year it did, but that just seemed like a complete that disaster. That seems like a disaster. Horrible. <laughs> I mean, I saw photographs of that and I just thought, thank God I wasn't there. Because what ends up happening is the playa gets caked onto your shoes. And so everyone's imagine. walking on these like mud, mud platform yeah. shoes. And then the mud is everywhere. It just, that just looked miserable. That seems like possibly the... I think it was just one year where that happened, where it was where the playa did not dry. So once it, there was a big dust, a big rainstorm, but then there were just pools of water everywhere. So, th- so that's that's challenging and um, figuring out your sleep because sleep there gets very skewed. There are people who are in bed by nine, who are in bed by nine and get up at six a.m. But then there's a lot of people who stay up till dawn and then sleep all day and then repeat right mm-hmm. so there's people on all sorts of different time schedules and so volumes guess, i'm sure on all sorts of yes. time schedules yeah and the music is all all 24 hours a day okay. so if you need total silence to sleep bring some earplugs earplugs don't even help at all <laughs> earplugs don't help i mean maybe a little bit but but, it's not but gonna... you need like noise canceling okay it's uh there's something music happening all over, even though the sound camps are on the edges. Yeah. I mean, it still doesn't, but then an art car might go by playing huge loud yeah. music. So it's, there's always going to be a soundscape. <laughs> so if, you, if you're someone who needs silence, Burning Man is yeah. maybe not, the, unless you go way deep playa. Okay. I mean, you can find some can silence, it but it's not. It's an experience it. for everyone. Yes. <laughs> um, your typical day there, right? So you wake up. I'm, I want to ask this question, so I'm going to. What is the experience? How painful is getting a coffee? How long is the line? Oh, um, well, first of all, most, I would recommend bring your own coffee. Bring your own coffee. Bring that's your own fair. coffee if, if that's something you want. Um, most camps have it, but if you were to bring one thing that was your personal item and you need coffee, I would bring either the pre made coffees or like the little pre made things. Yeah. Um, and or have your own coffee system. Okay. However, I would say every single time I went to center camp to yeah. get a coffee this last time, there was no line. Really? Because there's about 30 baristas. Okay. And my longest wait was, was very short. Okay. Okay. You know, and I, I like going to, for example, we would sometimes go to center camp at 2 or 3 a.m. And there would be no line. You'd get hot, co- hot cocoa or hot coffee. If you go at maybe 9 a.m. to noon, that the lines might be really long. But okay. if you go kind of in the afternoon. If you go at 3 in the morning. There's, no, three morning, there's no line at all. <laughs> it, it's very, very wide open. But ice is another thing. It's yeah. the other thing for sale. Those are the two things that are for sale. Coffee ice and, and coffee. ice. Ice, I would say, is a much longer wait. And there's definitely... Really? I, didn't, I wasn't on ice duty this year, so I never even went near Camp Artica. Um, but in the past when I had, you know, when I was responsible for all my own food and all every day we would go and get ice. Yeah. And I remember that was kind of an ordeal mm. when we were trying to figure out when the best time to, of day it, it is to go there. And Three was, in the morning, probably. Yeah. No, I mean, that's not <laughs> open in the morning. It probably should be. That would be 
Really good. They shut the ice down. You yeah. can get coffee yeah. 24 hours a day, but not I, I ice. Don't, well, I don't know now if it's 24 hours, but in the back in the day, it wasn't 24 hours. Okay. So I don't remember when it closed, but there were definite open close hours. Okay. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And do you, in your opinion, is ice essential? Is it a luxury or is it essential? When I was getting ice back in the day, it was essential because I all I had were those coolers. Yeah. So if I had food that needed to stay cold, yeah, uh, I had to get the ice. Um, and it's also more refreshing to have a cold drink. For sure. But it's also for perishable food. Yeah. Um, and the ice does melt pretty fast out there. So that's why I think I feel like every day or every other day we had to get ice. Okay. But in this last camp, I stayed and they had seven refrigerators. Yeah. Ice was not necessary unless you wanted ice in your drink, which that then that's a luxury. But back in the day, I needed it to keep my food to sustain my food for seven days. Yeah. Ramen and, doesn't need to be refrigerated. No, no. Well, well that's why <laughs> that's when you upgraded uh, well, life. Well, yes. <laughs> the, that was the shift because yeah. the, cup, the first three or four years when I went, part of the challenge was, okay, what food can I get that is, doesn't non-perishable, non-perishable. So fruit and vegetables were, you have fruit and vegetables for the first two days. Yeah. It's not something that you ha- that you have on day five or six. Yeah. So it would be, you know, what Trader Joe's pre-wad water and stir combos oh. can I find? And meat was not even an option. So it was pretty much vegetarian. It was basically nothing that had to be refrigerated. Yeah. No dairy, no cheese, you know, no veggies. And that's why this year was so radical for me because there were you know, you'd come in on Friday and there were blocks of cheese and you could eat that. And there were things of yogurt and there was piles of lettuce. And that was so luggurious. Yeah, Eggs. I mean, we had eggs. People would be making eggs and be making uh, uh, hard boiled eggs. And you'd come in and have an omelet. That kind of blew my mind because that was something that I, the first couple of years to eat fresh food was so rare. Okay, so I wanna I think I wanna I think I wanna make this become this transition. I'm I'm really curious. So I wanna go through the ten principles. I, I wanna get your feedback on them. Yeah. Can all of this can this luxury coexist with the principles? That that I guess is my like starting question about these principles. Cause one of them is the like leave no trace aspect, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's start there. Let's just start with leave no trace. Yeah. Because it's a, where do we draw the parameter of trace, right? Like mm-hmm. if we, if we pack in a thousand pounds of packaged goods mm-hmm. and then we unopen those packages, mm-hmm. even if we pack those packages out, yeah. uh, sure, we didn't leave them where we were, but they still mm-hmm. exist. Like, right. does that, does that actually fall in line with the principle of leave no trace? And I don't know. So I want to, I want to, I want your expert opinion. <laughs> Well, I think that that is a great, that's a great question. And that's a great, that's a great paradox, right? Yeah. Um, the concept of leave no trace really ties into the Bureau of Land Management's philosophy of don't leave an impact on the desert. Right. Right. The, the, the contract is here's this beautiful, pristine playa with not a single bush or or right. a shrub on it. It's pre- completely pristine. We will rent you this desert for a high price. And when you leave, it's got to look just as you found it. 
or so, better. Or better, right. So so that that that's the the playa, right? That's the contract with the BLM. It's gotta be perfect. Yeah. Um and Burning Man has spent the organization has you know, spends months after Burning Man to do a very, very detailed sweep of the desert, literally picking up every with tweezers, nut. yeah, with pistachio nuts <laughs> yeah. and feathers, and and they have a and that's called loop matter out of place, yeah, and they have lots of things saying, you know, please don't use these kind of like pistachio things that are going to get swept up, right? How much glitter do you think they have to pick up? Oh, probably a lot. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I don't know if what they can do with glitter. It probably just disintegrates, but it doesn't disintegrate. Just they should ban glitter. I'm going to say it right now. I know they should ban <laughs> glitter. Um, but then each camp um, is responsible. It's called a loop map that they are given that says, you know, this is what we found on your site, mm. you know, and they get a, a rating. Well, they get a report. They get a report, a mm. detailed report. Um, of like glitter at they, this they will. specific or, or, area. Or we found bags of trash yeah. or we found uh, pieces of wood or whatever it is. And that can, that can determine whether or not you get a placement yeah. next year. So, so they are they highly regulate that. So that's, that's what's happening on site. Right. And as Larry Harvey said, have you ever been to a city of this size with no trash cans? Right. So, so that, that's this, this huge amount of people, mm-hmm. And there's no trash can. So it's a pack it in, pack it out mentality of the leave no trace. But then where does it all go? Mm-hmm. So if on your way back from Empire and Garlack, the towns, you know, as you're leaving, there are these huge dumpsters. Um, a lot of the reservations, a lot of the Native Americans uh, actually make quite a lot of money this way because yeah. it's $5 per bag. Okay. And so people, burners pay to drop off their five bags of trash or yeah. their hundred bags of trash or, whatever it is. or it gets dumped in Reno. But now because people are expecting this massive wave, <laughs> this massive wave of trash coming, yeah. they are actually turning it into a profit. Yeah. So I'm actually really fascinated by the economies yeah. of Burning Man and all the economies that have evolved to, to create, to handle this. Yeah. Cause before what was happened before these people, um, who, who run these side businesses, people were just dumping trash in people's I'm dumpsters. Sure. Sure. And, the first the, dumpster. and these little towns were sort of saying, Filled up well, with trash. what the hell? <laughs> yeah. You can't just dump all your shit yeah. here. Yeah. And so they've actually turned it into a business, which is quite smart. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, I hope that's the only job some people have. I really hope that somebody makes their entire living off oh. of just collecting the trash from Burning Man. They do. And and, and <laughs> I actually, um, I ran into a guy who has property out near there, okay. a Native American guy. And he, because there's all these art cars, there's about 500 art cars. So you're not every single time going to haul your art car from San Francisco or from one of these other places. Yeah. That's... Um, and to, to host or to store something that like that in one of these cities is outrageous. So a lot of these place, these people who have tons of land, they basically have a art car parking lot mm. and rent mm. their land to burners. And I'm sure they do very, very sure, well. That's true. This is a, and this becomes a full-time job for them. Yeah. Because where does Black Rock City go after it yeah. comes apart? And some yeah. of it's too big to take back. Yeah. So there is actually so many side businesses kind of supporting the all of the infrastructure that has to go somewhere. And trash is a big thing and and I don't think I don't think um uh the sustainability component 
is I don't think people are responsible with their consumption. And in fact, I write about it in my book. It's excessive consumption. Yeah. If you go to Target or you go to Walmart in Reno or anywhere within a hundred miles of Burning Man, the week before Burning Man, these shelves are completely <laughs> empty. So you might mask your Pepsi can and put a like wrapping around it, but you still made a consumer commodity transaction and Pepsi was still involved. Got even it. if you mask yeah. the product. Is so, that a big aspect of is are people are people putting the consumer products in like conch I, shells and No, I I mean I feel that there is an attempt to kind of mask the, the consumption and and say, oh no, you know, this is not a U-Haul truck. You know, mm. this is a fairy house. Yeah. Okay. Um right, but the the fact is is that that um people spent tons of money, yeah. more money than they might spend anywhere else or any other time of the year For sure. to have everything they need plus more and then to give more, right? Yeah. Um so there's incredible amounts of consumption. Um, and it's actually, I wrote about it in my book, but there's these two scholars, um, Sherry and Coisinets, who did, who were looking for examples of um, people living outside the market. And so they thought Burning Man would be a great place to study that because it's a gift economy and there's no money exchanged. And that would be a great example of that. And they went to Burning Man and were sort of stunned by the an, amount of consumption they saw yeah. there. Um and they called it a theater of consumption mm. that it actually becomes this space of almost excessive consumption because then people spend $400,000 on these huge art installations of wood and nails and then they burn it. Yeah. So it's actually wasteful consumption. For sure. So that, that that's like the paradox of the whole of thing. So on one hand, celebrating its beauty and its incredible cultural currency and the experience economy and it's just this incredible thing yeah but you can't look at that without looking at the reality of an event like that so and and i, and I write about that too i mean i think it's not i i um i love burning man yeah through and through but as a scholar i also have to look at the things that are yeah not as pretty right yeah i well i think i think it's important to keep even as a even as a non scholarly participant in things, right? Can can you figure out a way to keep yourself connected to the idea of reality, right? Your title of your book is Edge of Utopia, mm-hmm. and we've talked about it. It's because it's not you're not fully into that utopian state. Mm-hmm. Um, so can we whatever it is, whatever vacation. That whatever your vacation experience might be, and, and if if that's offensive to call Burning Man a vacation, <laughs> that's fine. But yeah. it's an experience, right? Yeah. Yeah. So some people might want to spend their experience at the Four Seasons in Maui, yeah. and other people might want to spend their experience at Burning Man. Mm-hmm. Both of those are excessive consumptions. Mm-hmm. The the they're almost inherent that they will be excessive consumption because mm-hmm. you're you're setting out to have this experience that right. you can't live right. 365 right. days a year. But can we somehow tie back the reality of what we're doing so that we have even in our even in our um, desire to experience utopia um, uh, some type of anchoring back to the reality that we still are going to exist on this planet and we want to take care of the planet. Yeah. 
I, I think there's a lot, there's been a big push from a lot of burners to be more sustainable, to be more green. And, and I think it does on, on some level, you know, there, there's definitely camps that are irresponsible for sure. And they're just sort of in that capitalist consumptive space. Yeah. But for example, the camp I camped at Camp Contact, uh, you know, because of water scarcity, there, there's a really, and most, a lot of camps do this, but there's a very specific system for washing the dishes and how you do that. And, and that is really based on a sustainable model, right? Mm-hmm. Because the, the, the idea is we have this much water yeah. for 150 people for this time. Yeah. And so to make it last, this is how we have to do things. And so you have this three containers. Um, one is for, oh, you scrape the food off, you put it in the container, do the first rinse. You And so there's a very specific okay. system. Yeah. And, and so you wash 150 plates with this much water. Yeah. And then that gray water then gets evaporated. And there's a very, that is a very sustainable, sure. earth conscious um, system. And a lot of camps do that. I mean, you have to, because you, what are you going to do with? piles of water right so so uh same thing with the shower so to take a shower there you don't just i mean i'm sure there's some camps where people just wash their hair with shampoo and they're in this living in this utopia of the shower right but in our camp the idea is and it's kind of reteaching yourself how to take a shower at burning man if you even have a shower a yeah. lot of places don't but it's you know, rinse yourself off really fast so the water just trickles over you okay you you know you soap off okay if you soap off yeah but but you maybe soap off just the important areas but yeah. you don't wash your hair okay because we can't sustain washing the hair yeah. I couldn't wash my hair there because yeah. that would just because your hair goes down to your waist right and I, I I just wouldn't that would just take way much too much water way too much shampoo so I didn't even attempt to wash my hair there yeah and then the next round and then you have a washcloth which you dip with water and then you get most of the soap off and then. You do one final rinse. Okay. So the amount of water you use is this much. Yeah. And so that does, that is a sustainable thing of thinking about water. I mean, so for me, knowing that I couldn't wash my hair, I got things like dry shampoo or things that I, I knew could like help. I mean, and that's actually the first year I even attempted to keep my hair clean. In previous years, I just was like, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> this year I was a bit more, okay, I think I would feel better if my hair felt a little cleaner. so that's like self-care you know is is that aspect the like um because you're in you're in a as you've already described it's an extreme environment is the aspect of like nature kind of being on you being being really ingrained into you is that a Porsche like that's a huge part of it okay yeah i mean that's the thing is that if you are someone who needs to feel clean and just Burning Man is really not the place for you. Unless you have the 25K. Exactly. You, I mean, you have to be ready to just get dusty. I mean, if that that's an issue for you. And I know plenty of people who are like, ew, I just don't think I could deal with that. Yeah. Or same with the porta potties. You know, those those get a little nasty. Yeah. Some camps have their own porta potties, but if you need if that, if you can't handle that component of it, it, you're probably going to be miserable. That's the challenging part. You're going to be very unhappy. Yeah. You just kind of have to give over to that and work with it. You know I mean? And I think but that's part of the fun. And and that that's the thing that is starting to shift now. Now you see people on a Friday, technically been there all week, 
and they just look perfect, immaculate. Mm-hmm. They don't have any dust on their clothing. It's like, where have you been all week? <laughs> right? Yeah. How, how do you look like that? So they're clearly from these plug and play camps where they can shower every day and wash their hair. And that's fine. But I think in the past, there was something about by Friday, people just looked yeah. like the desert had taken over them. And yeah. that, that was part of the visceral fun of it. It's like, no, we don't look the same as when we arrived five days ago. We yeah. don't feel the same. We feel gritty and we feel dirty and we feel like, Arr. and that's kind of part of the transformation. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that some aspect of that is being lost where people are every day, they have a new playa outfit yeah. and they just look as good as they looked the day before. And they say, have a makeup artist doing their makeup. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we've, well, I think we've covered gifting. Um, radical inclusion, which we touched on a little bit early on, is that being lost? Yes. Okay. I think so. Because of these plug and play camps that are exclusive. Yeah. They are. And I think back in 2001, you know, I, I don't remember people having laminated badges that you had to have to get past a certain point in a camp. Mm. Right. It was just sort of free, free flow. I mean, yes. I mean, you don't just walk into someone else's tent uninvited. Right. I mean, obviously, there's personal space boundaries, right? But it was it was uh, much, much more inclusive. Let's just say uh, one of the components of a theme camp is if you are on the Esplanade that there is a a public component to it that okay. is open. Okay. Uh, but then, you know. As it should be, there are spaces that are, this is our private camping area. And yeah. you don't just walk into someone's private camping area. That's fine. I mean, that, that's kind of just a given. But one thing I've noticed in the last couple of years is now there are these laminated badges. And so, and there is a guard standing at Gated the door. Yeah. And you <laughs> cannot get into that back area without one of these badges. Yeah. Or someone's like, who are you here to see? Hmm. Right. And that is a shift. Yeah. Um, and then... One year uh, in 2013, on the night of the burn, all of the art cars gather around the man. And so there was this art car and it was kind of empty. And so I I went on to it with my friend. And, you know, we were on on it for about half an hour or so. And someone came up to us and said, so do you have a badge to be on here for the burn? And we said, no. They're like, oh, this is reserved only for this camp. Mm. And so we had to leave. And I remember thinking, okay, well, okay, that's really, that's shifted. That doesn't that doesn't describe radical inclusion to me. And I think that is getting more and more true. And then for, I heard, I read about it after the fact, but this big seven four seven by Big Imagination, the Big Imagination. The day I went, there was no line to get in because it just was on the last day, and we just wandered up, and it was it was crowded, but there was no line. I heard and read about it because there's a lot of articles about it. Hours and hours of lines trying to get in. And then there was sort of a VIP section of that, which only people who built the art car got in. And so that really created the club mentality of like the VIP section. And that's, that's really happening everywhere now in a lot of places. I mean, there's still a lot of fluidity as well, but it's an interesting, what's really interesting to me, right. Is if, if they, if the, if the first word of 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 the guideline wasn't radical right like radical mm-hmm. inclusion to me mm-hmm. is a hard concept to even appre- like understand and appreciate and let sink in because to me that means like we 
have to just be open and willing to whatever. Like radical inclusion in me provides the scary thought of just like sitting in your tent and someone comes in and they're just like, here's a cup of tea. We're drinking tea. And you're like, well, I guess that's what we're doing yeah. now. Um, and that doesn't feel comfortable. I, I, I can totally agree. And I can totally agree. Like whatever. Mm-hmm. If Brad Pitt's in there, he probably doesn't want me to come sit down and have a cup of tea with him. Mm-hmm. But if that's the policy of the, like, if you've set up this, yeah. this is our guideline. This yeah. is this is going to be the beacon of how this experience is. Mm-hmm. It's weird to then create barriers. Yeah, but I, I don't necessarily, I don't really feel like that's happening. The organization is not creating barriers. It's more the people, the different camps that are creating those own barriers. And okay. I, I don't actually know if and how the Burning Man organization is, is dealing with that. Yeah. Um, that's I, an interesting, that's an interesting, I, I, important I, I, point. I know, though. I know that there is, um, Catherine Shen wrote a book a couple of years ago called, um, uh, enabling creative chaos. And she really looks at the infrastructure of Burning Man kind of as a model for how other organizations might, cause it actually is very successfully run. Right. But I'm, I'd, I'd actually be curious if I was to do more interviews about how is that being policed, if at all? Yeah. Because I, I do think it, it's something that should be um, considered and discussed because it, it report card wise, right? Yeah. If the, if we're getting the MOOP report card, right? Maybe it, there's an inclusion. It or, seems like there should be a, an, 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 a, a I, that's report definitely call. a question I, I, I plan to ask in the future because you don't want it to be a, a series of these exclusive camps where everyone is basically you know, being rejected or being yeah. excluded. But I also really appreciate you like clarifying that point. Cause I think it's hard from somebody who hasn't experienced this to understand. But clarifying what point? Clarifying the point that burning man is it's, is it, is a different entity than the, than the camp structure, right? right. So they're providing the guidelines that right. they're telling the camps to follow. Yeah, right. And then the camps are creating their own guidelines right. that they're following. Right. So I, I just think, I think it's really important to, from my outside perspective to have that clarity of, Hey, this, you can't really place the blame on burning man that people aren't following the guidelines Mm -hmm. that they've presented. Mm -hmm. Um, now you could, if they're not, if there's no enforcement or whatever, they start to encourage that. Then that's a different, that's a different story. Um, but I do, I really appreciate that. Like you have to separate those two things out. There's the camps and then there's. Yeah. And, and burning the burning man organization is responsible for the infrastructure of Black Rock City, which is the placement of the man, the yeah. building of the man, the the placement of the streets, the placement of the temple. Uh, they there is a curation of the art, and those are placed. Um, there are grants for these big art organizations. They are responsible for the placement of the camps, um, and sort of doing the setup of the city and the takedown of the city. Yeah. But what happens within each individual camp, they're really autonomous. Yeah. Um, and they don't police the internal mechanisms of each group. Yeah. Um, but they do provide things like the MOOP report. And I'm curious, actually, if in that reporting back, there is a, you guys are way too exclusive. Like, that's not cool. I, I don't know how much micromanaging of that level happens. Yeah. Um, but that'd be interesting to find out. Very interesting. To because find a lot out. of it is, is autonomous. So Burning Man does not pay, um, Carl Cox to come spin at Burning Man because he's, you know, a world famous right. DJ and would cost $10,000. However, 
these camps, camps get together. Do. Carl Cox is being paid to spin a Burning Man. Yeah. And they may pool together to say, oh, we'll pay 2000 for him to spend this night and you'll pay 2000 And so overall, yeah. Carl Cox is getting his, you know, headliner DJ fees. Yeah. But that has nothing to do with the Burning Man organization. They, yeah. they do not. Got it. That's it, it's important. So that, that that's a huge plus for the Burning Man. You know, they get all for this sure. great stuff <laughs> that they don't actually have to pay for those those artists. And at the same time, it's also anyway, important to acknowledge that they also, I'm sure, get plenty of this hatred, right? Whatever this angst mm-hmm. for things that the camps are doing mm-hmm. that they they also don't have control over. Mm-hmm. So, um, oh, I remember. In 2001, because I was there with um, a well-known DJ um, and who I was dating at the time, and he was brought to Burning Man and and had a couple of gigs lined up. He had a Wednesday night gig, a Friday night gig. So he was there specifically to do these different gigs. I don't know if he was paid or not. I'm not, what didn't get into that. But I, on the first day that we showed up at Burning Man, a golf cart pulls up to our camp and like, where's DJ Spooky? We need to talk to him. And they located him and they said, you better not be promoting your events. Mm-hmm. If we see any flyers promoting your event, you're going to, we're going to shut you down because I guess they had seen a couple of Zara. He was performing at Zara. They had seen a couple of flyers that said, you know, DJ spooky Wednesday night. And they did, they shut him down. Mm-hmm. They said, if we see one flyer, one more flyer about this event. <laughs> so he's and so, running around checking every no, piece no, of no, paper. But, but, um, that, and so that has been sort of, there's been a, 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 a curbing of that. Yeah. So it's like, if you learn about Carl Cox, it's all word of mouth. Yeah. But they're not allowed to advertise it. Interesting. Yeah. Because they don't want everyone to be going to, you know, the Thievery Corporation event. Yeah. Or, you know, people tend to find out about it, but they can't advertise yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. That makes... I, I, and a lot of these... The edge groups, of utopia. Yeah, and, and, a, and a lot of these groups end up do a lot of DJs are gifting their their sets like they aren't getting paid. Yeah, maybe they get a free ticket or maybe they get put up in a camp. Yeah, so there's a lot of gifting in that way, but I doubt Carl Cox is coming for free. It's it's such I mean what a fascinating <laughs> I know. what a fascinating I know, you experience. Can, I can talk about it. For <laughs> um, there's so let me let me let me we're gonna skip a couple of these. Yeah. Um, but I want radical self-reliance. So it actually sounds like it's evolving a little bit away from that and more towards communal reliance. Mm-hmm. Is that true? I, I, I think when I, when, I, when I first saw that, it was more about, um, and I think you kind of also mentioned this, you really don't want to have somebody out there who has no capacity to take care of themselves because then everyone else ends up having to take care mm-hmm. of that person. Um, so to me, that's more like uh, radical viability. So you need to come with the level of like, you can stay alive for seven days. <laughs> and then everything else from there is like, you can maybe make yourself have more ease by joining a camp and, and either trading or paying, trading with financial um, to make your experience better. Is it shifting? Is it is it shifting from radical self alliance to a more communal alliance? I, I feel I feel like there's been a shift. Um, just looking at my first three years there, again I was very much so. The first year was really on our own. 
there was no, there was not even a kitchen tent and yeah. there was no shower. It was, yeah, it was ramen noodles and pop tarts. Yeah. Um, and then the next, the, then we did, then I did costume cult for two years. And so I, I've seen that sort of gradual of like, Oh, now let's, let's build a kitchen tent where we can all make our food, but we're all still making our individual meals. Like there's no, there was no attempt to have okay. a communal meal right. or even being like, Hey, I'll make ramen noodles for you. Right, 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 I mean, right. I'm sure people were doing that on a small scale, Yeah, but it, 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 at least at my camp, it just felt like everyone was kind of, there might be small clusters of two or three who are like, Oh yeah, let's all make our ramen noodles at the same time. Right. Eat them at the same time. I know there were other camps even back in the day, like at the temple, they would always have a sit down meal and the lamplighters had a coordinated food. Okay. Um, and they have a commissary for people who work, who are, you know, the rangers. And so the Burning Man has kind of a whole setup there if you work for the organization. But I have seen an increasing level of infrastructure within the camps to make it really communal. Yeah. And and to make it like, let's have a communal meal and let's do this communally. Uh, so at the beginning of every meal at Camp Contact, there would be announcements and there would be sort of rules of like, hey, this would be really great if, you know, you did, if people could help out with this and that, you know, and really a sense of community, uh, which is great. And I think that's how it should be. I don't think there should be 150 people all making their own separate meals. Right. Doesn't like, make that doesn't sense. make sense. <laughs> so that's actually the part that I love. Like, I yeah. love the eight of us were washing dishes together totally and that agree. becomes a social event. Like, sure. that's fun. Like, where else are there eight people all doing dishes at the same time or preparing a meal together at the same time? That is awesome. Yeah. I love that. That really, that was a sense of community that that's great. You know, so, so I feel like that is being lost by some of these camps where people just show up and have their meals ready for them. That That is actually mm. from like radical mm -hmm. community, right? Um, and bringing that together. It's so funny, right? If we've already lost that in society, yeah. right? We used to do meals yeah. together. You right. used to get the village together exactly. and everyone ate together and right. it was this big preparatory thing. Yeah. And then we've all gone and now we're all make these meals at home in these right. individual kitchens. Yeah. Um, that's really enjoyable. It's so interesting though, to see, to hear you tell me that burning man is following what we've already done with society, right? We've yeah, already going taken back to something that we lost. Right. And this is why I think people are so drawn to it. They're yeah. finding these things that they don't have anymore. Yeah, for sure. Same thing with ritual. So that's something that has evolved as well. Um, kind of organically again, all of this happened organically. Yeah. Um, uh, we have lost our connection to ritual. And so there's several rituals that have evolved out there that have really become a staple of Burning Man. And one of them is the temple that David Best designed. Um, the first one was in 2001 and it was dedicated to suicide because he said, there's no place in our culture where we have space to mourn suicide. It's sort of shunned. If you kill yourself, it's a terrible thing and it's not rec recognized yeah. as a, you know, um, and so he built this huge temple and by the end of the week, all the surfaces were, writ were messages to the dead and altars. And for me with the, the temple really was a shifting point for burning man. Cause it could be construed as one big party, right? Everyone's just partying. Right. But as soon as the temple emerged, it became a space of mourning and crying and, and grieving. And that sort of made it, it really balanced out the city so it's just something so much more than just a big party. Yeah. It's a space where people really came together. And that temple has now, it's a staple at Burning Man. The temple is a major thing. And the temple burn, which happens the night after the burn, is actually 
and completely silent. That so happens after. The, on Saturday, on Sunday night. Okay. So the burn is everyone's like, oh, kind of, a, you know, everyone's screaming. Catharsis is kind of wild. Yeah. And then on Saturday, Sunday night, when the temple burns, it's dead silence. silent and everyone's crying. And it's all the messages to the dead are going up into the, to right. the atmosphere. And it's very powerful experience. And then the other thing is with the civic architecture, one year, Larry Harvey and um, I can't remember who he did this with, um, Steve Movia maybe, um, put a, a line of lamps leading up to the man, kind of a, a, a pathway of these, these lanterns leading up to the, path, to the man. Um, they all got stolen that year because everyone took a lantern home. But uh, <laughs> they decided, okay, well, well so let's, let's have a procession to light the lamps and put them up, right? Yeah. So everyone wore all white and they maybe like a group of five or 10 of them. And then they really liked that. So they did that the next year. So then they had 20 people lighting the lamps and then they decided to do the lamps around the city and then to the temple. And so now there's a group of 800 people called the lamplighters who wear all white and sign up for shifts. And there's a whole organized camp if you're a lamplighter and there's a procession at sunset lighting the lamps mm. and it's this huge ritual that they developed. Um, so it becomes a space for people to invent their own rituals, yeah. not only use existing rituals, but a space for people to create their own. Um, and that becomes meaningful. At, like an additional layer of meaning almost uh, that, that um, the temple aspect where it's always the temple itself is the is a celebration of the dead. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, th- that mm-hmm. focus yeah. is always yeah. there. The death, yeah, and that experience being done in silence and afterwards. So it's like it's almost the grounding, the grounding of the whole experience mm-hmm. and kind of the reality that mm-hmm. we're mortal. Yes, it takes us right back to the Roman triumph, actually, which mm-hmm. I I love. So when you when you had your Roman triumph, uh. You were assigned a slave whose only job it was, was to whisper in your ear, remember you are mortal. Mm. And um, that temple experience is almost like that same, that same reminder. Like, yeah, you're having a great time this week. Mm-hmm. You're experiencing like humanity in a way that's hard to, mm-hmm. hard to express mm-hmm. and you're going to die. Mm-hmm. Keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like the, I like how you called out that it, it really provides balance for the experience because it, it really is. It's like, yeah, there's all this fun, but there's also this end it's waiting for you mm-hmm. for sure. Um, let me, let me do, let me do a couple last questions yeah. for you. Last really burning man specific, just to kind of bring every, mm-hmm. everything home. Is there anything that you really wish people knew about the burning man experience? And is there anything that you uh, feel like people have misconstrued about the experience outsiders? Yeah, I'll start with the second one first. Um, well, I feel that Burning Man has been misunderstood from the beginning, um, especially in the early days prior to the internet. And actually, Burning Man was one of the first people to really use the internet to, to communicate. You know, early on, there was all sorts of the media would say, oh, you know, drug festival, sex drug festival in the desert, right? That's how it was seen. Um, and Burning Man has had to really. Uh, work with lawyers and and all of their policies that they developed over the years to help tell the, the their story the right way because for a while a lot of the press once it started getting big would want to come to Burning Man do their story and leave and so they have a very specific 
press policy. They, if you're, if you're New York Times or you're Rolling Stone or who you're, whoever wants to come and be press at Burning Man, you have to, you have to go through Media Mecca and you have to get registered and you have to stay the entire week. You can't just come in, do your story and leave. They make you experience the whole week. Yeah. And there's very strict policies on like the photographs you can take that then get published, right? The average person can take a photograph, but if it's going to go into the media, you have to get permission. And even when I started studying Burning Man in 2003, I remember talking to a burner, one of the first people I interviewed, and she said, Burning Man doesn't want to be studied. You're going to get a lot of doors slammed in your face. You know, why would you want to study Burning Man? Yeah. And you know, I was like, all right, this is going to be hard, right? I'm going to get a lot of <laughs> yeah. resistance. And um, I actually requested, I went through Media Mecca, requested a bunch of interviews with a bunch of the founders, and I I was told no, right? Um, and then I went to the Media Mecca happy hour um, on Monday, and in the corner, I see Larry Harvey standing there by with his drink all by himself, just kind of, you know, looking kind of shy. <laughs> And so I went over to him and I said, Hey, you know, I'm writing my dissertation on Burning Man. He's like, really? About what? And I was like, I'm looking at performance and ritual. He's like, that's amazing. So let's sit down. I talked to him for a full hour. He was like, he was so excited that someone was taking Burning Man seriously. Yeah. That, and he was going on about, you know, how it had been, you know, he's really excited that scholars were starting to take an interest in what was going on Mm. and that could help shape the story of what was actually happening out there. And then I said, I couldn't get an interview with you. He's like, oh, that's ridiculous. Come over here. And, and he got me an interview. He's like, who else do you need to talk to? And he set me up with everyone else I needed to talk to. Crimson Rose, David Best, who was the architect of the temple. And um, so I think they were starting to realize, oh, you know, as scholars are starting to understand what's happening out there, that yeah. it's not just a drug sex festival in the desert. Yeah. And I think that, so that was sort of in the 90s you know, early 2000s. And I think as these books have started to come out, that kind of start to tell a different story. The perception has shifted. Um, and I mean, now I went to Burning Man headquarters um, in October and they have a library and there's about 200 books on Burning Man. Mm. And I remember uh, this year, I at first camp, I ran into the director of the San Francisco Art Institute who, was a, who worked here at ASU. And he knew I wrote about Burning Man. But this was his first year at Burning Man. And I was like, so how's it going? And he said, oh, my God, this is I am unbelievable. He's like, now I understand why you've been obsessed with Burning Man for the last 18 years. Yeah. Because I think before even my own research was not taken seriously or even sort of, why would you write about that party in the desert? Yeah. You know, and I mean, if you read my book, you can see all yeah, the yeah, layers. Yeah. But I was also one of the first people to say, this is not just a party. This is something so much more. Yeah. And um, now I feel like it's getting that respect. The Smithsonian is having that had that big show about art at Burning Man. Yeah. So I mean, there's a big this paradigm shift because 20 years ago, the artists who showed work at Burning Man couldn't get into a regular gallery. Mm-hmm. That's why they did their work at Burning Man because the galleries were like, "Oh no, you're not good enough." So then they do these enormous installations at Burning Man, and now suddenly the gallery world's saying whoa, what's going on at Burning Man? What are they like? Oh my gosh. And they're starting to take that seriously. And now that work is being shown at the major art museums in the United States, which is such a shift. Right. So there's that shift, Uh, which is good. I think it's getting the the attention that it deserves. But now the problem is that everyone knows about Burning Man. It's no longer a secret. Right. I mean, it hasn't been for 10 years, but I would say when I was starting to research it, 
it was not. It was still a secret. Yeah. It was like subcultural. Yeah. Not everyone now. Pretty much, it's out there. Yeah. Uh. So, so that's that's the that's the perception. What was in this first question was? So the first question is: there anything that you wish people knew that they don't? Yeah, I mean, I feel because of that perception. Yeah. I mean, I still encounter people who are like, "Oh, it's just this and For this sure. and this." I think the thing that people need to realize is that every subculture is happening there. Mm. So no matter what your specific interest is, you will find a group of people who like that, that thing. Um, so it's not just a one, one type of experience. It's, you could have a hundred thousand different Burning Man experiences, depending on your particular thing. Yeah. And if it's not there, you create it. Like if your thing was roller skating and, you know, to disco music, you're going to find the black rock roller skating disco. You know, if you want to play croquet, so you could find that if you want to dance till dawn, you can find that if yeah. you want to meditate, uh, even this year around two or 3am, we were all of a sudden about a thousand people run by us and it was the black rock city 5k at 2am <laughs> and everyone had their black rock city, like their numbers. Yeah. And I was like, what is going on? They're like 5k huh. they're runners. And yeah. they thought, I mean, that's the last thing I want to do at Burning yeah. Man is run a 5K. But there are people who are serious runners and they thought running a 5K at 2 a.m. would be fun. That's the thing, yeah. Right? So. That's a really good one. I, I really like that. Every, everything is there. It's humanity. It is. And and so you're going to find all those aspects and you can, you will find your your the thing that's happening. Like you can go and get a grilled cheese somewhere at the diner. Mm. you know, at some point or, you know, one of my, one of my favorites is, uh, it was about again, two or three, a.m. <laughs> but we were walking and we saw this, this red fish on a door. Right. And it looked like a, a thing. And we're like red fish on a door. Hmm. You know, so we went up to the door and the door was open and you walk in and there's like a hallway and then you open the door again. And all of a sudden you're in a Victorian, uh, tea room <laughs> where, where the the wallpaper is perfect yeah. and there are these old chaise lounges and there's a four poster bed and the lighting is perfect and the sound is perfect and you've just been transported back to the turn of the century yeah and there's some people there who are in period costumes mm. and there's a little stage there with one of those old you know yeah. microphones and so you go from the chaos of the playa to all of a sudden where am I yeah. wow it's called the red herring. And apparently during the day, people can get up and do open mic nights in there. And it's sort of this, but it's all loungy kind of music. So mm-hmm. it's, so if you, you can get on the list to do like an open mic night, but it has to be in that, like that feeling of the yeah. turn of the century. And it, and then someone comes around and is like, well, can I offer you a cocktail? <laughs> you know, and you get a cocktail. So it was these like little worlds that exist, yeah. right? That people, but then, so say I go to see that environment. And so then I get an idea. Next year, I'm going to build this experience for someone else. Right. right? I, so this is where these ideas keep percolating, right? Because people sure. get inspired. Like, isn't that isn't that madness. cool? Isn't that cool? Like I just like stumbled upon this Victorian speakeasy. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's yeah. pretty amazing. And, th- and there's no sign that says "come in here." Right. It was just like so 
so nondescript. And I think that's the sense of Burning Man is a sense of discovery. Mm. And if you feel like you have, if you can tap into your inner child and be in that space of discovery and play, it you will find wonder there. Yeah. And Jason Silva, I don't know if you're familiar with his yeah, work. For sure. You know, he talks, he went to Burning Man for the first time this year and okay. the whole thing on Burning Man. I'll but he talks about... He's an interesting dude. <laughs> he's, he's wild. He talks about wonder and awe and the capacity yeah. for that. And so he sort of, his mind was a little bit blown at Burning Man because mm. he says everyone is experiencing wonder and awe kind of simultaneously. Yeah. And uh, that it becomes this sort of fertile ground for that to happen. That is, I mean, it just sounds so lovely. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you can handle all the other things right there's the challenges that you and have then, to get through oh, the challenges uh, i would add are the eight hours in eight hours out yeah and actually the leaving might be the harder part because you're tired you've Ready been to go. you know so well, the excitement's it's, gone it's too. excitement it's, so it's just like oh getting through that last step yeah is there any way to make that better i mean i know you can do the private planes but if you weren't <laughs> no, going to do the no. private planes what are your other options um, I mean, if you didn't do the temple burn, you can leave on Sunday day and the traffic tends to be a little less on that day. Yeah. I would say on the last, the day after the temple, cause we had our shift yeah. uh, to do the dishes. We had, we had to do like three hours worth of dishes because a lot of people didn't do their shifts. Okay. So we had to pick up the slack. Okay. But that was challenging, yeah. but you just had sort of had a good attitude yeah. and just make it happen. Yeah. I mean, but what, what Burning Man has developed is this thing called the pulse. So you're not sitting in your car with your engine running idle. You, mm. you drive, you stop, you park and they pulse people out Got and it. every hour they pulse the next group. Got it. Through. Got it. So it's actually a pretty efficient system. Yeah. You just have to just kind gonna of take some time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Last two questions. Trying to decide which one I want to go with here. I'm going to go with um, if you could know the answer to one question, the truth, absolute truth to one question, what question would you ask the universe? In the, in the world. In the universe. You can go beyond the world. The absolute truth? Yeah. Like, give me an example. I don't know what you mean. Anything. If right? I could know the answer. So you can know the answer to anything. So it could be... Whatever. What was my great 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 grandmother's name? Now I wouldn't ask that question. I think there are better questions you could ask, but you could ask that. I don't know. It's wild. Is there something I could know the answer to? I don't know the word. Anything. 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 Right. So I'll tell you this. I'm I'm amazed. I ask this question a lot to a lot of people, and I'm amazed at how few people ever say. I want to know uh, the answer to what happens after I die. Right. Because I think there's a lot of answers to <laughs> what we're doing. If oh, we, I've... if we, pull, okay, hit me with it. But no, keep going with you. Well, I just think if we know that answer, right, if we know what happens uh, after we die, we know so much about what we're doing mm-hmm. right now today. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, <laughs> it provides a lot of insight. Yeah, I think, um, so... One thing I have is, um, uh, it's, I, I'm psychic, okay. but I'm not psychic to the point where I would like you know, charge money. You know, I'm not psychic where I can necessarily control mm. when I have these right. d- downloads or yeah. do these things, but when they happen, premonition. yeah, but, but when they happen, they're pretty profound mm. sort of, uh, Ooh, you know, and, and they've been validated in various ways. 
I guess a question I would be interested in is about, I think all of us have the capacity or all of us have psychic abilities. Mm -hmm. I think it happens to all of us in whether we perceive it and acknowledge it and name it. Right. I think we all have that capacity. Right. For some people, it's more fine tuned. And for some people, you know, they call themselves psychics because they can be like, Oh, and they can, they can kind of pick and choose where Mm -hmm. they're. So I guess the question would be, because it hasn't necessarily been validated by science. There, there is stuff coming out a little bit where they're like, oh, you know, we see the aura that connects you and that is real and people can. So I guess it would be, I'd be curious to know what, what is that? Yeah. You know, what, yeah. what is actually going on? Like, am I actually seeing that happen? Is it real or is it, I'm just really being perceptive yeah. Or is it an actual ability that people have yeah. to tap into someone else's mm. psyche or tap into their trajectory? Or that would be interesting. Yeah. Unwind the cosmic fabric. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Last question. Do you have any questions at all for me? So what inspired you to do this podcast? <laughs> That's a good question. Or, or not, not my podcast, but like yeah. your series. The series of podcasts is a great question. I think it's just my desire to have fascinating conversations with people, right? So we've spent uh, an hour and a half um, and I've been able to just grill you with any question that I want. And those opportunities are too few and too far between in daily life. Mm -hmm. So this has been probably my selfish way of getting to experience lots of rad things. (laughs) Nice. Nice. Finding deeper meaning. Deeper connection. Deeper insight. So I started this out probably, um, I think I probably started this out before a lot of my own personal growth, mm. right? Where I, where I, when I started, I had a much deeper and in many ways darker necessity to like gather facts and information. I, I really have in my life been too closely associated with my capacity and ability to research things. And I'm just now like really blossoming away from knowledge and into experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that shift has allowed me for this deeper, the deeper connection side of Mm -hmm. things that is um, good. Hi. Rachel, thank you so much. This has been such a rad conversation and I can't wait to get feedback on this. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks.